Hello, hello, and welcome back. This is our uh, St. Patrick's Day edition of the Mining Podcast. <laughs> well, you'll be listening to it on Monday, but we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day. So yeah, Thursday. It, it is our St. Patrick's Day edition, so uh-huh. we, we had this discussion before, but I don't think either of us can do a convincing Irish accent, so we'll probably uh, avoid Oh. Do oh. you want to try? Well, yeah. I'm a Newfoundlander. Oh, okay, let's hear it. <laughs> How about I'll surprise everyone at some point. All right, whip it out at some point. Because that, that's the thing that that's what leprechauns do. They just like jump out and they surprise you. Oh, I was warned that today if I didn't wear green, a leprechaun would pinch me. Oh my gosh, I don't know if I have green. I don't have green on. You're going to get leprechaun real bad. <laughs> oh um, but yeah, we should have brought in a bunch of Guinness for this episode. But anyways, welcome back, everybody. We're here. Uh, it is St. Patrick's Day. So Yay. hopefully you're uh, at the pub already, unlike us, but I'm sure we'll be there later. Uh, but yeah, so we're back in action. Um, and we continue to do these amidst what are relatively very good metals markets now, I guess, what we're looking at now. So as we do every week, uh, we'll start off just with a quick touch in on on where metal uh, prices are and what the markets are doing uh, lightly. Um, So firstly, copper, uh, once again, uh, US 229 a pound, briefly hit 230 a pound uh, earlier this week, I believe. Um, So copper is singing along. Uh, Gold, we're at US $1,256.80 an ounce, which I believe is kind of... Yay, where we've been uh, the last couple of weeks we've been uh, recording. And then uh, the TSX was at 13,632 in 0.53 points. So doing pretty well, all things considered, I think. We're doing so good. It's yep. green, green, green. Yep. And um, that's the other thing. Uh, big news. We'll talk a little macroeconomics just to start off because there was the big uh, meeting of the Federal Open Market Committee, which is like the U.S. Fed's like, they decide what to do with the economy type people. Mm-hmm. So they decided that, uh, or they didn't decide, they implied. So let's use the correct it, terminology. They always seem to imply. Yeah, Is they it don't just like, me? No, no. Uh, every time I like read about it, it's like they're kind of sly about it. They're like, well... They speak in code? Yeah, they're like, just guess what we're going to do. <laughs> but this is kind of what we're going to do. So what they implied um, was that the U.S. is now probably only going to have two interest rates hikes this year. Compared whereas to? Three to four oh. they had originally forecast, which which came on the heels of them essentially downgrading the U.S. economic growth prospects. So in response to that, obviously, uh, people don't think the U.S. economy is as good. Gold goes up, obviously. Yay, yep. U.S. dollar goes down. Nice. Um, so I think the Canadian dollar is trading near a six-month high right now. Thank God, because I'm yeah. going to Hawaii in oh, a couple of months. Yeah, so. well, that's serendipitous. I'll tell you that. I know, I'll that. I know. Yeah, definitely. And then <laughs> crude oil hit a two-and-a-half-month high as well. Um, amid the slumping U.S. dollar, because there's a sort of counter-relationship there. And also um, OPEC, which is uh, the big uh, oil consortium, mm-hmm. and Russia will meet in April to discuss production limits. Yeah, April 17th. That is the date. Yep. Big day. Yep. And then uh, there's also some talk of forward copper buying. Um, I got a few analyst reports that said uh, copper inventories on the London Metal Exchange are at a two-year low. Uh, But keep an eye on increases in Chinese warehouse stocks because they seem to be rising. So all things considered, it looks if the U.S. dollar continues to kind of struggle a little bit and the U.S. economy underperforms relative to expectations, gold could continue to be good. Oil might stay up and copper has been... Rallying, I guess, on a a little U.S. dollar action, and B that some of the inventories are down. So yeah, like some of the copper oil stocks have been doing. Super yeah, good. Like yeah. We well, were just talking about. Oh, that's what I forgot to mention. Freeport. West Texas Intermediate, which was a big story. We we talked last week about forty dollars a barrel oil, and it it we're up at uh, U.S. forty dollars and sixteen cents a barrel now. So, yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. It has not been a bad week for commodities. So mm-hmm. we're sitting there uh, with with pretty good prospects. I think gold still kind of the favorite amongst most of the analysts I've spoken to. Everyone's kind of, if you have a good gold stock, it, it, the people are pretty bullish on on the prospects this year. Top pick uh, for, I think, Canaccord and Scotiaship. Uh, this may be wrong, one of the two or both, but I know each of them have them. But uh, B2 Gold's quite high for everybody. So oh. I, I did just cover their... Uh, yeah, because you're doing a story on B2 Gold. Yeah, I, I covered their quarterly. So if we do have a chance, I might uh, dig into that a little bit later in the show. Um, and they did uh, fully fund their Facola project, which is in uh, Mali on the border West of Senegal. Africa. Yeah, cool. Yeah, well, w- what we really want to... S- um, let's get right into our, our headlining uh, item of the week, which is we had... Uh, or Leslie had a, a relatively big uh, interview with Brent Cook mm. on... Um, on 43101's retail investors. And this kind of follows up on an article Selma Tariq, our writer in Toronto, wrote during the PDAC where she interviewed Cook 
Brent Cook. Yeah. And um, they had a, there's been a lot of talk on the reliability of 43101 reporting and um, you know how reliable they are for retail investors and how you can make them more accessible for retail investors. So what um, why don't you lead us in here just a bit a little background on on Salma's article and what you talked to Brent about and, and yeah. uh, some of the issues. It's 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 a cool story in a way that um, we're we're it seems that you know Trish and I and Salma and everybody here We've been um, putting out heaps of stories on 43101s ever since Rubicon and Gold Corp had issued their notices of, well, the demise of Phoenix and then Koshner and Eleanor mm-hmm. production cuts and demotion back to exploration for Koshner. Very apropos topics lately. For yeah. Us. yeah. And, you know, and it always, we just keep asking ourselves, why? Why is this happening? And it always points to 43101s. And um, like like you mentioned, Selma did a really great job in interviewing Brent Cook or talking to Brent Cook about um, what some of the dilemmas that uh, investor retailers face. And generally how those reports are put together, right? Like, yeah. I mean, you guys had to, I, I think one of the things Selma mentioned and I think you guys got into was how they go about putting them together, what's included, and by by extension of that, what's discluded and what, what maybe should be in there, right? Yeah, well, I caught up with Brent the other day mm-hmm. um, on the phone, and I, I was actually able to catch him before he was going down to Mexico. Oh. For, for <laughs> get this, Brent Brent is going down to, to the Baja for a volleyball tournament. Oh, my gosh, really? Yeah, totally. You can't keep track of these guys. They're just uh, <laughs> globetrotting. I'm sure he's going to check out a few deposits while he's in the neighborhood, too. Yeah, maybe, or just cocktails And I have this, like, this awesome visual of Brent <laughs> cooking that scene from Top Gun where it's like <laughs> with that Kenny Loggins song. <laughs> yeah, so I managed to catch him before um, he got too much of a tan on. Yeah. And he, um, he, I asked him, you know, what, why are we seeing all these problems and what, what is the most concerning problem that um, he sees in the investor space? And this is what he had to say about it. All righty, let's run that. Well, I think in reality, I think the, you know, investors are putting too much faith in the NI-43 101 compliant uh, resource reports and technical reports. Um, they get the sense that because it's compliant, that means it's accurate. And that's not necessarily the case, as we've learned a number of times. So basically, the, the NI-43 101 is an outline, if you will, what has to be included but it's not the government's job to check the resource estimate to check the mining assumptions unless it's blatantly obvious that there's a problem well i think really bottom line it's up to the company and i think particularly with uh, well with all companies but the, i'll follow the junior side of things um the more information you put out there with regards to your sampling your geophysics uh your drill holes your resource estimate more likely it is that someone's going to actually take you seriously. I mean, I, I gave a, an example of a company that released a nice, nice drill hole, uh, 98 meters of four point something grams. And the map that went with it was useless, totally useless. It didn't really give us any context of where it was, what it meant, or how it fit into the bigger picture. And I gave another example of a company, uh, Almaden Minerals, that put out another drill hole. And they tied that directly into the previous drilling. Uh, they had give you a section, and on that section, they gave the individual assays going all the way down it. So that gives you a sense, you know, you can throw that into context. So I think just things like that that a company can do are a big help. And if, you know, even if you don't understand everything that's being presented, if you see it being presented, that's a pretty good sign. I go through so many resource estimates. Uh, that are compliant, and there'll be one representative section, or not even a section. Um, in order to un- comprehend what a resource actually is, you really need to be able to go through a number of cross-sections across the ore deposit to see how it all ties together. It's just a matter of making an investment decision. Um, right. If I don't have the data, how can I make an investment decision? And I think if they don't supply the data that tells you Basically, one of two things about this company is, one, they're incompetent, or two, they're trying to hide something. I suspect it's half and half, uh, half incompetence and half, you know, you, you you don't want to put out too much context if it shows that what you're doing is, is uh, going to 
kind of worthless. Oh, okay. So that that kind of wraps up what you're saying. Where where um, what how retail investors kind of approach. 43101s. Yeah, I mean, it's like he said, it's not the government's job to check the resource estimates to make sure it's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what what ends up happening is is that unless there's something blatantly wrong and the BCSA or the the Securities Commission picks it out when mm-hmm. a news release comes out, um, then it kind of gets swept under the rug and nobody really knows. And um, like I mean, well, the interesting thing I've always I always said is like there's there's on one side you have the argument that yeah, a company should disclose as much as possible, as clearly as possible, and um, make it as digestible as possible for everybody from engineers down to brokers down to retail investors. And on the other side of the equation, you have, well, in sort of a capital capitalist free market society, you have a sort of buyer beware thing, right? Where it's like, well, you know, there's there's an onus on the buyer to do enough due diligence to understand what they're buying, right? Yeah. So, so the, sort of the happy medium, I guess, would be a point at which companies disclose to the extent that investors can digest that information, understand it, and then know what they're buying. Well, this is the issue, right. and th- this is what Brent was saying, is that you know he goes through all these resource estimates all the time, um, and you know we all do. We, we look through 43101s constantly. Mm-hmm. And there's so many times that there's so much information that's not put into it. Like if you, if you yeah. want to go look at a section through somebody's resource, I mean, good luck even sometimes finding a section. Mm-hmm. Or even good luck trying to find on a press release um, the caller data, survey yeah. data, in order to actually see where that great, hot-looking intercept actually came from in space. There's yeah. so much information that's actually missing from these reports, and that's one of the big issues um, that he foresees um, that's happening in this space. Because not only can the um, investors um, not be able to make a decision, but even for him, being somebody who understands as as a geologist himself, um, how to interpret somebody's results and how to see that there could be an issue with somebody's resource, so they they can actually go to the BCSC or the Securities Commission and complain oh, in order to okay. prompt some yeah. sort of investigation review, review right. etc. Yeah, and, yeah. and it's, it's always so in the dark. Like SRK right now, we don't know if they're being investigated for the Rubicon. No, estimate. that's never disclosed until right? after the fact. Exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. the other thing that's interesting, I want to know is, I mean, all these investors and all these analysts who foresaw Rubicon's estimate. I don't know how many of them how come, how come they didn't? How come they didn't go to the APEG or the Securities Commission and say, "Look, you know, I've looked at this. That this doesn't seem right. They're not disclosing any information in their forty-three one hundred one. Yet they're building this huge mine. How come nobody um, prompted the BCSC to get on the back of that? Or sorry, I keep saying BCSC, but it's Securities Commission. Yeah, whatever. yeah. Um, and so, yeah. Um, and anyway, I mean, Brent, Brent kind of like nailed it on the head. Um, about like why is it that we're not actually seeing this information in reports? And- I like that. It's either incompetency <laughs> or <laughs> you're hiding something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's something to be said. And the thing I've always, you know, talking to people on the corporate side who have to make these disclosures versus people on on Brent's side who are reading them and also making investment um, recommendations to things like that, whether they be newsletter writers, brokers, etc., mm. is that. Um, the issue from the company side is is a cost. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie that there's there are people out there who are probably trying to use these things to possibly inflate the value of shares or, or mislead people. It's it's going to happen. I mean, it's it's happened before, and I mean, we don't know to this day whether Phoenix was an accident or not. We probably never will, right? But there's a degree with a lot of companies out there where you don't want to overburden them with red tape to the point where they have to make so much disclosures that feasibility studies and resource statements and all that stuff become so onerous to publish right that they just like who's going to do them like just giant companies like the only people who are capable of doing them anymore are you know multi-billion dollar uh multi-cap uh, market cap companies like True. tech or gold corp or something you want to be you want juniors to be able to you know put out their own resource statement without having too bad a you know a cost barrier or a time barrier right because you don't want it to take like 12 what does sometimes take 12 months but you don't want them to be stuck like telling the all everybody in the market like oh we're going to release a resource on this new discovery and then they're like due to all the new regulations everything they can't put that out for like ever like three years or something. you know i was catching up with paul gettys from barkerville yeah um a few days ago and we were having a big gab about it yeah and he's the one that's doing the um, new cow mountain resource oh okay yeah so he's working on that right now yeah and uh, he was saying that the solution could be kind of simple. Oh, and, okay. 
he suggested that, well, why is it that we don't actually, as an industry, have maybe an independent panel for resource estimates? Kind of like, you know, when Imperial Metal and the Mount Polly's Dam tailing spill yeah. and that total disaster. And one of the greatest things that came out of that um, was the implementation of an independent panel for tailings review. So yeah. any sort of uh, engineer that designs a tailings dam suddenly has to submit um, that uh, that report to an independent panel of engineers and they sign off on it. So it's like basically having more than just one expert expert's eye on the ball. And Paul was saying, you know, maybe that's something that our industry can adopt as well. Or the, or the CSA and the CIM who actually makes these regulations on 43101. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's something that we can look into as an industry in order to bring uh, investor confidence back into the space. That's funny because I'm, I'm in my master's program right now. And you're oh, making yeah. me think of like my thesis advisory committee where these people are going to like look at my report and like <laughs> judge me. And I just had like cold sweats. But it, it's an, an interesting idea. I mean, it's, having, a, it's uh, a good one. I yeah. Think it, could be a, a solution, right? Yeah, but I mean, the I guess the issue you have is 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 the quantity. Like, would a group of six or seven people or whomever made it up have the time or, or ability yeah. to go through that many technical reports? Because I don't know how many are filed a year. Probably less now than there were three years ago because mm -hmm. of the down cycle. But um, it'd be interesting. It's, it's an interesting um, suggestion. I'd definitely... Uh, Definitely be interested to see um, that gain a little bit of traction in terms of conversation. Yeah. Or just yeah. even have companies out there, anybody who's listening to this, if you're putting out a press release and you have pre uh, you have intercepts, um, I mean, even simply a two-dimensional map, maybe a three-dimensional model, throw it up on corebox.net, check it out. Um, anything to kind of increase the transparency of your results mm -hmm. can go a really long way. Because if you put it out there, then that tells the investor, hey, these like they, they know what they're doing. This is robust. This is is going somewhere. Well, yeah, and the other the only other issue I I could kind of foresee right is like, what uh, level of um, technical expertise could you assume that the retail investor has? Right, mm -hmm. and and I mean, uh, the, that's sort of the, you know, we're trying to find a balance here. Yeah, where we don't want to overimpose regulations on on what are essentially startup companies like you want your startup company whether it be in mining or it or any industry really to have the ability to start a company build a company f discover things do r d or in our case exploration um but at the same time you know you want to protect uh the consumer with a retail investor to a degree um especially in our business where things can get a little technically dense yeah, right. it can get very technically <laughs> yeah. dense, but I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, we're, we're at the bottom here, it seems, in terms of our effort and, and transparency. And yeah. it's, it's, if we raise it up a little bit, maybe it's not just for the retail investor like Brent Cook, you know, he's a newsletter writer, so at least yeah. he has more information to put his hands on to tell his um, his followers. But also, too, it's like for our community, um, so that when we look at 43101s, mm -hmm. for example, or press releases, yeah. we have enough data to see if it's crap or not. Yeah. And, then, and then I can turn to APEG or I can turn to the securities commission and say look you know i think uh we might have a problem here because this doesn't look accurate to me and well, so I, I remember that happening with the original cow mountain estimate. oh yeah like the day it came out everybody in the newsroom was like yeah. uh <laughs> we're all like looking at it we're like what and then i was like i was like uh at the time um there was another writer who was senior to me and i'm like you do you write it because yeah. I don't even know. Like, <laughs> well, started. I just started and this thing came down the pipe. Or oh, I, I was, was like, that when you just started? Well, six months in or something. No way. And this thing came down the pipe and everybody in the industry was like, what <laughs> the heck is this? <laughs> and they're like, and, oh, it is actually, it's a really good story. And uh, uh, But if you look back to our coverage when uh, when Barkerville was originally making those disclosures, it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, and then the other uh, thing that you, you've mentioned in the past and that I think Brent also gets into is... is what what sort of should be disclosed that isn't? And one of the things you guys talk about a lot is drill callers, right? And yeah. what, why, if you just want to get into why that drill callers, drill surveys. Well, I was mentioning yeah. last week's podcast episode. I was talking to Jonathan Launch from Corebox.net, yeah. and uh, he offers like this 3D modeling service online. So if you have drill caller information, mm -hmm. so survey data, um, callers, and even assays, you can upload that directly into his website and then create a three-dimensional model that you can like scoot around and take a look at, yeah. which is really rad. Um, but he says that you know, a lot of these companies actually don't publish that sort of information. And it's kind of weird because even in 43101 um, standards, mm -hmm. it says that, quote unquote, if an issuer discloses in writing a sample, analytical, or testing result on a property 
material to the issuer. The issuer must include with written disclosure the location type of samples, the azimuth dip, and uh, widths and everything like that. Um, and that's something that we don't see. We actually don't see this in press releases. Wow. And we actually often sometimes don't even see it in in 43101 reports. I mean, or it you have goes, to dig for it so deep that it's like, yeah, I know those things are just and they, like, they just do composites. I can't imagine being like just somebody who's like, oh, I'm kind of interested in mining. And you're yeah. like, I want to maybe put like a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars into a couple, you know, risky stocks. Like, I want to maybe somebody take a shot at something. Mm-hmm. And so you're like, oh, these guys published these like really detailed reports on things. And then you open it and you're like, holy, holy smokes. Yeah. Like, yeah. I have, I have my job, school, kids, whatever I have, and I'm not going to go through like a 300 page report on this company, right? Like, oh my God. No. And it's like, so you, I, I'm sure like, a lot of them do either rely on their brokers, the broker they analysts, rely on the, and or, us. or us. I don't, I don't know. We, we try not to make stock picks. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Not, maybe yeah. not stock picks. Yeah. No, we will. We, we don't do stock picks. Yeah. Either. We don't do stock we picks. We have to so. go through reports all the time. Um, At but, least I do. Yeah. So that's, that's the Brent stuff. Um, yeah. And, and again, this ties into uh, Trish's great article that's out this week called Engineering Reports Fail to Impress. Yes. Uh, Trish uh, um, caught, I think it was a presentation by Tim Oliver. Tim Oliver. And he, at he, um, he, he also contributes sometimes to Exploration Insights alongside Brent Cook. So they've done a few oh, things together as well, I right. think. Um, and then he gave the presentation at uh, PDAC. Um, and he's sort of, uh, he brands himself a 43-101 expert or specialist. Yeah, he did. A, he went um, to 34 studies and he found yeah. that 13 flunked. 13 flunked. Yeah. Uh, and Tim is a uh, <laughs> consulting minerals and environmental engineer. Yeah. Um, and I believe uh, he started his career as a shaft sinking laborer uh, in Arizona. So he's been in the business for a long time and he does some really cool presentations. Um, so you can uh, you can check out, check out Tim's stuff. Uh, Trish has a front page article on his presentation at yeah. PDAC. And there's going to be more stories that are going to be coming out on this subject as we well. We are very much on top of this one. So uh, Leslie and Trish are doing a lot of good work on, on the 43101 reporting and, and uh, related uh, topics. So do pay attention to that because that's some great stuff. Okay, so moving on uh, to our next segment. Um, so yeah, the uh, other thing that you had wanted to talk about, I think, was Ivanhoe. Um, because you did have a big, um, big piece on Ivanhoe. Also, Leslie's got the pure gold piece we talked about last week. So do check that out on the front page this week. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, was this the Kapushi or the Kamoa? This is Kamoa. Kamoa. Yeah. So they just released, um, their PFS on Kamoa. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, they just recently kind of did the box cut for Ken Soko Sud, which is basically going to be like where, um, the, the PFS is covering that area because it's high grade, it's shallow, um, so they've got like 71.9 million tons at 3.9% copper. So it's 5.1 oh. billion pounds mm-hmm. that the PFS kind of covers. And they're looking at, you know, $1.2 billion CapEx, um, returning an MPV of $986 million. Ooh, what's the IRR on it? You know? It's 17.2. Um, and that's at $3 a pound copper. So, I mean, it's going to be a long mine life. I think it's like 17 years yeah. or so. Yeah, that, that's one of those... It's going to end up being one of those deposits that probably needs a specific part of the cycle to be developed, I would think, right? Maybe, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's expensive. And then if, if copper drops to 250, then the NPV slides down to 336 million. Yeah. And then if it goes down even more, then it goes into the negative. Yeah. yeah there we go. There's a negative. Uh, that's a <laughs> negative. Yeah, yeah finally, saw, right? Yeah. So I don't I don't know. It's, it's really cool. It's a cool deposit. Sediment host it. I mean, these things are just like hilarious deposits because there, there is just a copper blanket now this is a yeah this is a big system right like it yeah runs these things like it's big ground it came from groundwaters back in the day that had like lots of copper in it and then as soon as that groundwater hit a reducing part of the stratigraphy in the yep. ground it just like dumped out all of its copper but did so over millions and millions of years so it's like highly disseminated essentially, yeah it? it's just like this slow moving system <laughs> i always call neoproterozoic sedimentary hosted copper deposits as the hangover to the uh, paleoproterozoic but when they're big yeah well big. because they're just so lazy it's like millions <laughs> of years of just hanging around dumping out its copper yeah. compared to the proterozoic when all the continents were like breaking apart oh, and like and it was like crazy yeah. volcanoes and gold splurging everywhere and then suddenly bam you know nothing moved continents just kind of hung out and now is this this is the um 
project that the Chinese took an interest in, right? With yeah. Zinjin Mining did, I believe. That's right. Um, That's right. So then, um, and again, Ivanhoe's, I always just think Friedland. But um, yeah. so they have a, the, the uh, partnership with, with the Chinese company. Yes. Um, so that <clears> might be, I mean, it might not be a huge issue for China to support yeah, that they, they size like, of a CapEx, really. So. Yeah, and plus they, they think $3, $3 a copper is like... Three dollars pound copper. Hey, we're we're already at two thirty, yeah. so it's not yeah. that far to go. I, the th- cool thing I find about Kamoa is mm-hmm. that you know this um, Kensoko Sud area. You know how it says five point one billion t- pounds. Yeah. Um, compared to the rest of the deposit, it's the rest of the deposit is like fifty or fifty two billion pounds. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's got like tons of room to grow, right? Like this is oh, this it, is essentially a greenfield discovery yeah. that Friedland made privately and rolled it in with Platt Reef into the new Ivanhoe vehicle yeah um so interesting yeah it's like essentially a big greenfield copper discovery and they haven't even come close to no i I don't know i don't have it on me but i think their property package is pretty big like they have oh it's quite a lot of concessions oh it's true yeah Yeah. i mean like that that copper horizon just like goes into the sunset that's Mm -hmm. why the sunset's red because it's cast by red metal yeah (laughs) that that's basically africa yeah and then they found kakula just um five five kilometers from kamoa they they um announced in during roundup in january that's right that's right um that they discovered kakula and the cool thing is with kakula kakula get it (laughs) oh i see these puns so i know so many puns in podcasts (laughs) um yeah the cool thing with kakula is uh it's got like 15 meter thicknesses which is which is really impressive compared to kamoa which is generally averaging like five meters now refresh refresh me on on when they're doing stuff like how deep is all the is the deposit when you look at it it you know, from a cross-section point of view. Right. It's at Kensoko. Yeah. It, it's really shallow. And then it, it um, the resource ends, I think it dips gently, and then it ends like a kilometer deep. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So it goes, it, there's quite a dip to it then. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah it's gentle. Yeah. So they'll, they'd probably do a decline and maybe end up on block caving or something yeah. later in life. I'm speculating. Yeah, I'm something like that. And the same thing, I don't, know, I'm not an I don't know about Kakula though, because I mean, they just, they're going to be drilling that out this year. Yeah, so that's, hammering the, and it. do you have, a, do you know what they're spending there this year? Oh, gosh, um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't have the numbers. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Right yeah, no worries, no worries. But they're spending. Yeah, I'm assuming they're drilling yeah. the heck out of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we can definitely check that for next week. Uh, but that's good. Um, and so it's, but it's in excess of what was the capex? One point two. One point two billion for um, that boy. initial initial phase of mining. Yeah. And then they want to produce like a smelter after that, like. Oh, they want to do an in-country smelter. This is in the DRC or this, Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. Just so everybody, I think we we might not Did mention that, but yeah, it's good to know just because I mean, uh, Lundin and Freeport run tanky there. Yes. Right. So mm. um, yeah, interesting. So yeah, I could totally see. Um, an agreement involving a smelter. So essentially they want to do their own. Well, it's not in the PFS because the PFS, you can only write a feasibility study on reserve area. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the rest of the deposits in indicated and inferred. Okay. So they couldn't, they couldn't do it on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the PEA, the original PEA, which contemplated all the inferred resources, they said in year six or something, they might like kind of go into a blister copper phase. And then, oh, and then that okay. would cost like 3.2 billion. So yeah. I don't, Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but by that time it would have cash flow, and there'd probably be a major partner involved. I would think probably. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So they probably got a big plan. It's a big mine. You need a big plan. And it's funny that, that, um, they've been kind of getting whaled on share price wise. Ivanhoe has, yeah. um, and they're at about 92 cents, I think today so i mean that's a fairly significant project for a sub dollar company to be sitting around on i mean th- that doesn't say anything to their market cap obviously but um if they can break through on plat reef and they can bla- break through on one of kapushi kamoa um you know one of these any of these three projects they could be a, a totally big deal, right if like, they can break through it, like yeah. they could be they you know like i mean it hasn't been exactly been the Best market for financing these kind of mega, <laughs> mega <laughs> assets, but they do have quite a quite a selection of stuff. And I think I heard um, it might have been Rick Rule in one of our PDAC interviews or one of the videos was saying, yeah, Ivanhoe's like the one of the lowest per share costs for like getting your hands on like three kind of world class assets. Yeah, and I guess they are to a degree also discounted due to the jurisdictions that are a bit 
can be a bit touch Maybe. and go. Yeah, mm-hmm, a little true. touchy and go. So, yeah, so that's good. Um, and then I did want to do, um, we, we have been following along uh, a couple of unfortunate mine disasters uh, globally that we were talking about the last couple of weeks. One of them um, was the Lily Mine uh, sinkhole uh, near the town of Barberton in South Africa. Uh, that was the one where five weeks ago a ship, uh, a steel container that was used as an office sunk in a sinkhole and three um, three staff of Vantage Goldfields were stuck about 50 meters below surface. Um, so we do have a bit of an update on that. Uh, they had um, indefinitely suspended rescue efforts, but now this week they are... Um, Rescue efforts are resuming uh, oh. with kind of a new strategy. So the Vantage Goldfield CEO, I believe, was on um, on uh, an African news station. He said they're developing a, a new decline or incline tunnel around 500 meters from the sinkhole and disturbed area. So they're, they were, last I read, in the midst of doing this or it was imminent. So at Lily, they're getting back down there. Um, it has been five weeks. So again, we do cross our fingers and toes and <laughs> hopefully the, the three, um, the three employees are still, still with us. Um, and then the other one that, uh, came down the wire last week was at Glencore's Katanga mine. Um, and that was a collapse in the pit. Uh, some unfortunate news coming down today on that, uh, Glencore announced that all seven workers did not survive the incident. Uh, they located three bodies thus far, uh, one of them being unidentified, um, and that happened 10 days ago. So that did not end well, um, unfortunately. So uh, we will keep our eye on the lily mine um, just because it is ongoing and they still aren't too sure what's what's happening down there. So I'll keep my well, our eye on that. And then Katanga, unfortunate news at the end there. So our hearts go out to uh, the families and uh, all mm-hmm. the employees there at Glencore. Um, but yeah, that was just a quick uh, quick update on, on stories we've been following actively over the last couple of weeks. Um, the other thing that uh, I was going to talk about a little bit, we mentioned it during the, uh, the, the lead-in on the macro, some of the gold stuff. I had mentioned that B2 Gold is like, a lot of analysts love them. And I can see why. I mean, they do have mines in some volatile jurisdictions, be mm-hmm. it be it uh, Namibia, which isn't too bad. I mean, I shouldn't say that about Namibia. Namibia is okay. The Philippines with, and uh, Nicaragua. And I mean, they, they've made like sort of a, their MO is like, we can go anywhere and build a really awesome mine. And these, thus far, <laughs> they have done that. Um, to, and so their newest one um, mm-hmm. is Fakola, which is, as we mentioned, in uh, southwestern Mali, I believe, or southern Mali. Um, and they just funded it. So, and they did it without any equity. So really? No, they didn't dilute themselves. How did they do it? Uh, they did. Well, they had 85 million in cash on hand in the, t- in the kitty. Um, and then I think they had 125 million in an undrawn credit facility. So they had like a loan they could take down. So that's about, what, 210 they have, they Not had bad. already. Um, and then they, the whole project, the CapEx for it's 395 million. And it's kind of like a, a carbon and pulp mix kind of plant um and it's a big mine it's uh four million tons per year i think big gold mine um and so what they did uh was they actually forward sold some gold which we haven't seen too much lately oh there's Um, been some of that some of that i i saw some hedging the other week capstone novo i was talking to novo resources they they um sold their some gold to sprott for like Really? 11, 1100 Canadian. Oh, wow. That's a good, so trade for Sp- Sprott. <laughs> um, a good deal for Sprott. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, so so there has been a little bit of this. I'm actually looking into an article on, on hedging. And, yeah, and cool. Are some, you? Yeah, talking oh, cool. to some finance people on it. Uh, just because we have seen um, a little bit of it. Uh, Capstone did it. And then, like you said, there was, Nova's a junior, but there, there's a little yeah. bit of, of forward selling going Western, on. Um, Western Australia. Yeah, that's place, right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, B2 Gold, uh, sold, um, a hundred and essentially $20 million worth of gold over 2017 and 2018, which I believe is, it's only around 4% of their production next year. Cause the mine's supposed to hit commercial production in late 2017 and then 6%, I think of their consolidated gold production in 2018. Okay. So it's not too, too much, but they, they got 120 million to put towards the CapEx, right? Do um, you know how much they sold it for per ounce? Uh, well, I could, I could break that down. I, I, I'm writing an article on it now, so I will do that in the article. Gotcha, um, so Matt. everybody check that next week. I'll have those numbers <laughs> for you. But, but yeah. essentially I think it's 51,000 ounces in the first year and then around the same the second year okay so it's if you break it down i, I i'll figure it out for you okay. I, I, I just don't want to be like on the ball i guess be like writing on the paper like, trying to figure out math <laughs> and everyone's listening to this is like that guy, that guy. <laughs> so 
I'll leave you in suspense on that. If you check out the article, check out, subscribe to the paper, please. Um, so, so they did. So that, so that gives them in excess of 400 million. The capex is 395 million. So they're pretty good. Good. Um, and they did generate some pretty good cash flow this year. So they're, they're humming along. So they're, they're really a preferred mid-tier, what they call mid-tier producer, because if this mine gets built to the specs they say, they're going to be pretty close to a million ounces a year producer. Right. Which moves you kind of up the next, that's kind of the graduation level, right? Cool. So they're currently at, uh, I think, around 500,000 ounces a year. So this will bump them to around eight. So they're one more mine. They're they gonna need one more mine, and they'll be there. So we'll keep our eye on them because I did uh, listen to the conference call earlier today, and um, management there at B two Gold did sort of hint they were gonna be looking for that next, you know, whether it be organically they're or hitting that milestone externally. Yeah, they'll be hitting oh. that milestone. So they they kind of hinted at you know that maybe there should be some consolidation in the West African gold space. So totally, you well, know, there's because Endeavor just ate true Endeavor, gold. Yeah, uh, there's a few kind of mid tier guys roaming around there. I know B two Gold has a pre- or uh, I am Gold, I should say. Yeah, has a presence there. Um, Amara, Amara, the yeah, they're just about to hit production rate. Um, and there's a few uh, a few kind of intermediate to small producers down there that could, you know, you could see a consolidation. And one of the other things, I was listening to uh, to the V2 Gold Conference call, and they're like, yeah, we were, um, this was uh, Clive Johnson, who's the president and CEO. He's like, yeah, we were, uh, we bought this thing. They bought it in 2014 for, uh, about 570 million all share deal from Papillion Resources, which was a, a Australian company. And he said, yeah, we were willing to do this when nobody else had the courage to do it. Um, and he said, uh, now we're reaping the benefits because look where gold is and we bought this mine and, you know, we built right through the down cycle. Like, and he mm. said, some other gold producers are way too conservative because one of the things they did at their Ojitoko mine, which they just hit uh, commercial production on last year, was they actually built in an expansion plan to the original mine build. And then they made this discovery. And now they can, then, then they expanded the mill by about 500,000 tons a year, I think, to wow. 4 million tons. And so now they can accommodate this new discovery they made. So that's they're doing the same thing of Facola and Mali, where they're kind of building in that inherent expansion potential. So they pay a little bit more up front, but apparently they like the exploration upside and if they find something they want to be able to accommodate it at the processing facility. So that's kind of what he was saying, um, an insight into kind of their strategy of how they do it. So, <laughs> so yeah, people really like, uh, and some of the analysts I, I heard say B2 Gold, now that they've, they've funded this mine, it's growth as a shareholder you don't have to pay for because there wasn't any equity dilution. It's already built in. Yeah, they've, fun- they've financed it. So you can buy the stock at whatever it's at today. I think are over two dollars now. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then suddenly they add about two hundred and seventy thousand ounces next year or something like that, or two years from now. So, so yeah, B two Gold is uh, always an interesting. I mean, I like to follow them around because they're in some really cool places like the Philippines, Nicaragua, Nicaragua. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you ever been down there? I'm planning on it. Oh yeah. Eventually. Is there surfing down there? Yeah, heaps. Oh. Heaps. <laughs> heaps. That explains I'm always it. that caliber. I'm like, you guys need somebody to come down and take a look at your properties. And <laughs> uh, oh, down. you know what else I, I did have for the listeners is um, I actually have a sound clip uh, from uh, B2 Gold CFO Mike Cinnamon Ooh. explaining the financing. Cool. So he'll explain break. He'll actually me. break it down. So maybe he'll actually have those numbers that I failed to bring to the table. <laughs> so here's Mike Cinnamon from uh, B2 Gold CFO. Uh, we'll run this real quick. He's explaining the uh, recent financing that included a uh, equipment facility financing with Caterpillar and the Forward Gold sale. Yeah, the um, it's, it's relatively. I don't think we've seen many of them done by gold companies, but, but it's a relatively straightforward financing in, in, in concept. It's really a, it's a, it's a forward contract. You've locked in um, for production that we're going to deliver into in 2007 and 2018. And we've got, we've sold forward and then we've been paid up front. First, there is an underlying cost to that um, in terms of what the federal role sort of financing fee, but but at the end of the day, um, we've now locked in 120 million, and we to satisfy that we have to deliver into it uh, 51,600 ounces in 2017, and 51,600 ounces in 2018. And we plan to do that in monthly installments, equal monthly installments over those two years. And 
we think it's a very attractive financing uh, for us because it, it effectively lets us get Fakola up and built, and then we can use some of Fakola's production to actually build a little bit requirements that we have to deliver into. And also, it's not a significant component overall of our total consolidated production. The, those 51,000 ounces in 2017 represent about 9% of our consolidated production for that year. And 51,000 in 2018 represents 6% because then we have Focal off and running and our production grows grow significantly. So we think it's a very effective, you know, when you talk about using the proceeds, we're using the proceeds that we get from those forward sales today to help us finish building Focal and then we'll use Focal's production in part and there you go so that that pretty much wraps up our b2 gold coverage i just wanted to uh, dart in on that because there were like a flurry of analyst reports this morning and then we'll i'll uh, i'll be writing that up in a lot more depth so do check that out next week um and now uh without further ado i believe it is are you gonna do it i'm gonna do it you said you weren't going to do it i didn't know if we had time with the rent cook stuff but uh, we, we turns out we do, so Twitter time is intact. It's Twitter time. It's Twitter time. Oh, man, I'm so happy you get to I'm do it. so happy. <laughs> so let me just pull up my tweet list here. I always have to do this. I don't want to, like, write out all these tweets each week, so I send myself, like, an email. Oh, you do? With the tweets in it. Mm. And so then I read it off my phone. Uh, so here we go. Um, so let's see. Maybe this will go from good and bad news to good news or it might dart around. So we'll start with bad news anyway. Uh, so Trevor Hall tweeted, um, the trend with coal continued, uh, Peabody energy, which is, I believe the world's largest private coal company warns that it will file. It will may file for bankruptcy protection. So we saw Walter energy alpha, the U S coal companies are kind of going downhill. So there's another one. Watch Peabody energy. They might be the next coal outfit to, to file for bankruptcy protection. So that was one there. Uh, we, we have been, I know we've written a little bit about the coal debacle down in the U.S. I think John Cumming, our editor, covered it a little bit. But Peabody could be the next domino to fall. So there's an interesting one. Um, and then uh, our friends over at mining.com um, wishing a goodbye to Sam Walsh, who was the chief executive at Rio Tinto. Huh. Um, and he has uh, stepped down uh, voluntarily or not. Nobody knows. I, I've read a few things. Some people think he's... Leaving voluntarily, some don't. Um, but the new boss um, is Jean-Sebastien Jacques, and he was the old head of the Copper and Coal Division. Um, and this is interesting because we've talked in recent podcasts about how Rio has like an interest in copper. So they're now naming the head of their Copper Division as the CEO of the entire company. Right. And when they made a strategic diversification into iron ore, guess which part of Rio Sam Walsh was involved in? Mm. He was the former head of the iron ore division. Right. So now the head of the copper division. So like we keep saying, one of these days there's going to be a big Rio deal that's going to drop. And I'll have been saying for like, <laughs> by then it might be like eight weeks. I don't know. But for four weeks I've been saying Rio is looking for copper. And now this this just kind of, it, it's not proof of anything. but it, I it, think it's pretty it's Yeah. Pretty like so, so uh, Mr. Jacques there who was the head of the copper is now head of Rio overall. Uh-huh. So. There you go. We'll see if, uh, if that comes to fruition with some big... Uh, Big copper deals. Um, and then the other one, I had uh, a tweet here from um, a user, Benjamin T, who actually just tweeted me this directly. So we have our first Twitter. Uh, I don't know if he was actually aiming at the podcast or just at me generally, but we, you're getting read on the air. Um, <laughs> so, so he said, uh, why does no one ever see com- uh, commodity bubbles or bursts coming? It's so true. And he's like, and That's he sent me question. this, uh, this interesting article. Um, I think it was from Bloomberg or Routers. I'm not sure which, but, um, uh, it's just like, it goes into like analysts at Macquarie bank estimate the Chinese steel usage in the construction sector peaked in, peaked in 2013 and will be 20% lower by 2020. So they're just saying like people should have known back in 2013 that steel production in China was peaking. But meanwhile, companies like Rio and BHP were ramping up iron ore, which is a main additive in, in steel production. So, and they're, they're just saying, why don't these guys ever yeah. get it? Right. And, 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 uh, and then there was a quote, uh, from an analyst that says, uh, well, BHP bulletin anticipated emerging trends that signaled the end of the boom. Oh, this is actually a quote from BHP. So while we anticipated emerging trends that signaled the end of the boom, we didn't expect the scale and the speed at which it happened. 
Right. So nobody thought the bottom was going to fall out, essentially. That's like them saying, yeah, we saw this happening, but we didn't see this happening. I've seen that. I heard a lot of this lately. That doesn't make any... Yeah. Well, they're just like, (laughs) we're not idiots, but we we maybe are. But um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, like I've heard a lot of this lately where in the gold space too, they're like, well, what the heck were you guys doing? Like building these, like when... You know, Barrick was doing Pascualama and then, you know, there's there's all these major gold deposits just sitting there like Donkin and Blackwater now and everybody paid all this money for them and they can't develop them. Like, the, didn't you guys? They're like, no, we thought it was going to be 1,800 gold forever. 1,800 gold forever. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, no. Oh, yeah. my God, it's way lower. Like, we, did, we we thought it might go a bit lower, but not 1,200. Jeez. We're always geniuses in the bull market. Yeah. Always. All of us are. Um, so <laughs> our next tweet is from uh, CNN Money Investing. This is interesting just because uh, this is the top stocks of 2016 thus far. <gasps> okay. And this is on the this is on uh, oh, really the S and P. I think this is uh, this is U.S. This is, obviously because okay. this is CNN. Oh. Um, but Freeport McMoran is number one, yeah. up forty eight percent. January thirteenth. Is, 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 <laughs> we have two mining companies. Th- this middle guy is not really related to our podcast, but we'll continue with the list. Uh, shoe and clothing company Michael Kors. I believe I own some of their shoes. They're all right. Oh, yeah. they, they, I don't know about the, <laughs> the longevity of them. I find the soul is a little bit. Anyway, up for, plus 47% this year. Nice. And then Newmont Mining is up 46%. Oh, is it? So two or three are, are major U.S. mining companies. Oh. So you could see that with Newmont because gold's up quite a lot. And Newmont's yeah. one of the largest, um, especially in Nevada. They have massive land holdings. Freeport, though. Freeport's interesting. Maybe they were just oversold. I don't know. Yeah. I think I think it's because there was just a lot of negative sentiment. And back yeah, in the day, it was like negative news about Freeport all the time. Yeah. It's more psychological push down. Plus, the, like, also, I guess they've benefited duly, not just from the balance of copper, but oil, right? Because they have uh, a big energy yeah, totally. division. So $40 oil for them looks better. So yeah. they were, uh, actually, Freeport was number one. So I'm like, I'm, I'm assuming, like you said, it was like an overreaction and then everyone bought way back into it. So yeah, maybe yeah. Freeport might be going down. Anyway, we don't know. Um, so if this, it got overbought, we'll see, we'll, we'll keep our eye on that one. Um, and then this is another one. Uh, I think Trish might be covering it this week. What is it? Um, is that, uh, Barrick gold was fined 9 million by the Argentinian government. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah and, exactly. uh, this related to, uh, the government of San Juan province in Argentina, um, fined the company, uh, the $9 million figure in relation to a cyanide spill at the Valadero mine last September. That's right. Yeah. So that's, uh, we'll have in-depth coverage on that coming up next week. But yeah, that was a tweet uh, that came through from Ian Fleming. Um, I don't know. Interesting. I don't think cyanide spends a lot of time in the environment. I think it immediately gets like, um, like through a chemical reaction or something. Oh, it just gets buffered out. I don't know. That's but what yeah, somebody it would, told me once. Well, it'll cost like, oh, you $9 like, million anyway. Yeah, $9 million is not so bad compared to Imperial <laughs> $65 million. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Oh, yeah. That and was... how much was the, uh, the Samarco one? Oh gosh, we had like that was billions. We Close had that. Lives. That was a couple. Yeah, That's that was awful. a couple weeks ago. We got that figure. It was three or billion or something yeah. like that. I, think. I wonder what happened at Barracks Valadero operation. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll have uh, some good coverage from Trish because yeah. she's been absolutely killing that Argentina Argentina beat recently. Oh gosh. Um. So she, I'm sure she best. has some inside insight on the uh, the Barrick uh, Barrick find there. So we'll look forward yeah. to that next week. Maybe we'll. Uh, See if we can get her uh, to make a little bit of comment for the podcast on that. Um, next up, uh, Kamloops News. This is this is awesome because the Kamloops News tweeted this, and it is about a environmental breach in Chile. Oh. So why do you think the Kamloops News would be tweeting about a mining? I have no idea. It's because KGHM is involved and they own Ajax, which is right, right outside of Kamloops. Ah. So there's a big to do about up in up in the interior on on this because uh, KGHM and Sumitomo faced a twenty nine million dollar fine and a license withdrawal over environmental breaches in Chile. And this is at the Sierra Gorda mine, which is like KGHM's hugest asset, like big asset. Um, and KGHM has been going through a lot of trouble. They're the like Poland's almost state mining company but they fired like everyone last month i was actually supposed to have an interview with them via email and i typed up like a bunch of questions for their media guy sent it through and then the day later they fired everybody and he's like don't worry we'll still get back to you and they have not gone back to me that was like a month ago so kghm i'm waiting for my answers to my well-worded questions so in this situation uh uh the chilean copper mine sierra gorda what happened here um 
was uh, a mild, it's, it's a little vague, but serious to mild breaches, including failure to implement measures to control emissions, altering national habitat for native wildlife, and operating a tailings dam in an unauthorized fashion, which what? sounds really bad. You probably shouldn't be operating a tailings dam in an unauthorized fashion. So they got a, they got swacked, and they didn't just get the fine. They got their license revoked. So wow. they're in a lot more trouble down there in Chile. Big and time. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, Jeez. And then the wow. last one, I wanted to just give a bit of a shout out to IDM Mining. You, you're familiar with the Red Mountain property. Yep. Uh, Rob uh, McLeod and the, and the guys over there, uh, they tweeted out, uh, just so everyone knows, Red Mountain's about 80 kilometers northeast of Stewart. So this is a local story. It's another reason I wanted to work it in. Um, but uh, IDM selected their mill and tailing site for year-round processing at Red Mountain. So they just tweeted that out. There's a little bit of information on the uh, IDM site if anyone wants to check that out. Um, and they're moving towards permitting that. So we're hopeful they'll uh, they'll get that through because it was always uh, it's always nice to have another uh, another BC. operating mine in BC. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And we Good talked news BC story. Yeah, we talked last week about uh, <laughs> the drum. I'm still laughing about. Well, that. A little, about which the drum? Oh yeah, we talked about the land access and also uh, I did a um, another thing people can can check out this upcoming is I did a bit of a look into equity financing. The uh, We're doing the, some of the data stories now. Oh, yeah. And uh, BC isn't faring quite as well on the exploration dollar side uh, over the last oh, six months compared well, to Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan. Like, but relative to the uh, rest of the, the re- yeah, are yeah, okay. yeah. But we used like to be really good. Yeah, like 2013 used to, used to be, we were like, BC was racking in exploration dollars. Mm-hmm. And now it's, it's uh, fallen off. I do have the uh, actual numbers coming out, a nice cool little study everybody can check out on the website. Uh, but uh, yeah, so that should uh, do it for this week, I think. Cool. It kind of covers everything we were going to... Happy St. Uh, Patty's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. Did that work? <laughs> oh my God, you totally did it. Did I? Yeah. Yes. Was... <laughs> I've never even tried to do it. Well, you get to listen to yourself ter- now. Like... Oh, it's going to be embarrassing. Oh, <laughs> I hope I hope uh, nobody knows listen to this one. Um, so yeah, get out there, drink some Guinness. Or if you're a Jameson person, please dig into the Jameson, guys yeah. and girls. Uh, but yeah, so uh, we'll leave you for this week. Um, again, looking forward to... Uh, Trish will have some more Argentinian coverage because she's been absolutely slaughtering that. Mm-hmm. Leslie's looking at... I was, I'm doing Osisco today. Oh, Osisco royalties. Osisco. Okay, they are always interesting because they've got that new business model going on. Mm-hmm. I'll have your B2 Gold results. Uh, a few interviews coming down the pipe. So uh, thanks again for joining us and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.